to get started this morning again, I just want to echo Pastor Mike's sentiments. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Today we're in Genesis chapter 47. If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn there with me, even if you're at home, to find that in your Bible or on your smartphone. Genesis chapter 47. Today we'll be covering verses 13 through 26. And then once you find that, if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word. Now there was no food in all the, all, in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that, that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year had was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die. And that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not need to sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be yours own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your household, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the kindness that we have received this morning from your body, your sheep, the members of your family. And Lord, I think not just about those of us who serve currently on staff as pastors and elders, but about, I think about all those who are in our congregation that have shepherded your people throughout the years, serving you. Pray that you would bless each one of them as well. And let them know how much we appreciate them for what they have done to serve 
in various capacities your body and the broader community of faith. And I thank you for them. And I thank you for your people, Lord, who seek to live in faithfulness to you. And I pray that you would bless them. Lord, as we decide to take a few moments to, in our service to look at your word, would you be with us? That is, would you make clear to us the way that what you have done in the past might influence our thoughts for the future as we make decisions about our lives? We rest not upon any effort that we can do as humans, but we rest solely upon the power, the presence, and the ministry of your spirit that he would be active in our midst. For those who are watching us from home and for those who are present in this service, that you administer all to all the hearts who are listening and even to those who are going to view this service later this week, uh, Lord, as time permits in their schedules, perhaps they're working today. Would you minister to them in the moments that they watch it? May it be as fresh for them as it is for us. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So work is one of the most time-consuming commitments that we have in our life. If we were to look at the amount of hours that we spend in our employment or working, the amount of hours is staggering. In our community group, we started a study called The Gospel at Work to know how to live out a Christian life at work. And in the first session that we did together, uh, one of the leaders who wrote the study talked about the amount of hours that we spend at work. And they calculated based on a 40-hour work week that over a person's lifetime, there will probably be somewhere around or above 80,000 hours spent working. That's a lot of hours. And so then for those of us who are enrolled in the School of Discipleship to Jesus Christ, we want to know how our work life, just like the rest of our lives, fit under the rubric, under this all-encompassing concept of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Today, I want to share with you that it does, and I just want to share with you one way in which our work life falls under the category of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we're to allow our relationship with Christ to influence how we work. So let me just tell you what my point is right up front, and it's this, that we are to be a blessing to others at work. We ought to be a blessing to others at work. Now, when I come to this text and I look at it through 21st century, modern Western eyes, there is a ethical dilemma that arises for me in the text. Uh, I will not be addressing that ethical dilemma today because today is an extremely difficult text to deal with, not because it's not easy to understand, but because of how it plays out in the narrative and what happens in a narrative. So what I'm going to try to do today is try to look through the lenses of the narrator and what his goal was when he wrote this text and what it is that he was trying to communicate to us by the life of Joseph and how it fits into the larger story that is being told. So I'm going to try to look at it through ancient eyes and not modern eyes. And that's what we're going to try to do today. So let me start off beginning with why or where do I get this concept of blessing from in the text? where it begins right back in Genesis chapter 12 when we have the turning of humanity with the selection of Abraham. Perhaps you remember the promise, but let me read it back to you again when Abraham begins to become part of what God is doing in the world. And God said this to him. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you 
and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. Now we walk away from this promise with a simple understanding that God intends to utilize Abraham and his family to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And also God has put this little stipulation in in which those who honor Abraham, God will bless, and those who dishonor Abraham and his descendants will be cursed. And God's going to make sure that happens in the world uh, in light of how people treat Abraham and his descendants. And we see this play out as we looked at the lives of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we today, since our text focuses on Joseph, I want to draw one uh, example from Joseph's life. We see this kind of play out when Joseph was first sold into slavery. Remember, he went to work for a gentleman by the name of Potiphar. We can't remember. He might have been the captain of the guard. That seems to be what was going on with him. But notice what the text says about what happened in Joseph's life, at least to Pharaoh, in light of what he had done. So Joseph found favor in the sight, in his sight, that is Potiphar, and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So God blesses Potiphar because Potiphar honors Abraham's descendant, in this case, Joseph. And how did he honor him? Well, he put him in a position of leadership. So God is keeping his word as he watches over the affairs of the world. And it's this background that's in mind, along with all the other things that we've already encountered in Genesis, that when we come to this text, that there is an expectation that Pharaoh will likewise experience a blessing in his life because of how God has been acting and interacting with humans based on how they treat, honor, or dishonor Abraham and his descendants. So we know from the text that Pharaoh has already honored Abraham's family in two ways. One, he has placed Joseph in a position of leadership, and that speaks to us and calls to mind that a blessing should show up in his life. And secondly, he allows Jacob and the entire crew of that part of the family to take up residence in Goshen so that they may survive the famine, and he is generous with that. And so those two things make us believe that, at least from the way the story has been playing out, Pharaoh should be receiving a blessing. This is heightened all the more when we come to the court, in the court, and Jacob shows up in Pharaoh's court, and we see what happens at the end of that encounter. Notice what the text says here in verse 10. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. So now we know that Jacob has blessed him, and so now we're wondering how is it that this blessing that has been given by Jacob, by the fact that he has Pharaoh has honored Abraham's descendants. How will God work that out in the history of the world? But before I tell you the answer to that, let me share with you one writer from a biblical theological standpoint of how we might define blessing, at least in the book of Genesis, how it's used. One writer said this, blessing is the bestowing of privilege, right, responsibility, of, of, or favor upon some portion of creation by God or by one whom he has blessed. And that's the reason of what I believe of what's going on in chapter uh, 47 verses 13 through 26. I believe that the narrator has inserted this to show us how the blessing 
what that looks like comes to Pharaoh. And I believe that's exactly what's happening in this text. This is Pharaoh's blessing that God does because he has honored the descendants of Abraham. And that's where I draw the idea of blessing from. And in light of that, I would like to suggest to us that just as Joseph ultimately becomes the means by which God blesses Pharaoh at his work environment, so we also should become a blessing to those who we work for or work with or who work for us. And the reason why is because we are blessed just like Joseph is blessed. Because we, are, we have honored and we are rightly related to the descendant of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ. And we have honored him through having faith in him and through worshiping him and through giving our allegiance to him. And in light of that, we have been blessed because now we have the same blessing that Abraham has, which is the relational presence of God in our lives through Jesus Christ. The proof of that for every believer is the Holy Spirit indwelling each believer. And it's in light of that fact that we review the teachings of the New Testament, which seem to point us in the direction that our disposition toward others ought to be one of wanting to bless. Think back about the teaching of Jesus. Let me remind you of what he said in one of his famous sermons. He said this, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And this doesn't just stop what Jesus is teaching, but his apostles echo the same sentiment when they write the believers at different points in history. Notice Peter, for instance, when he writes this letter, he says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Paul says something extremely similar when he writes to the Romans. Paul says this, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. James has the same idea when he talks about us and how we deal with our tongues and how that we ought not to honor God with our tongues, and then out of that same mouth, turn around and curse man who is made in his image, James chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. And if our disposition in hostile situations ought to be an attitude of wanting to bless others, then how much more when we're not in a hostile environment? So our text gives us two ways, I believe, that we can draw out from what we see in Joseph's lives of how we might be a blessing to others in our work environments. Let me start off with Joseph's first way. So when we look at the text, we're reminded of the fact that Joseph is sitting as an administrator over all of the land of Egypt. He's overseeing, of course, the sale of food and grain to the region of Egypt, and as well, we see Canaan as part of that. Uh, since it's so close by, there are those who are journeying there like Jacob's family. And he's going to become a blessing to Pharaoh by using the definition that I share with you, increasing Pharaoh's privilege in the land and his favor. Now, he increases his privilege by discharging his duty as an agent of Pharaoh in a trustworthy manner. And we know that Joseph is a trustworthy person because the narrator has already shared an example of that by giving us a scenario in which that was shown in his character. You remember Potiphar and the wife situation, how Joseph handled that situation. It was telling us about the kind of person that Joseph was. And so we see this happen in the same text here. 
At the end of verse 14, if you'll look back there, you'll notice what's going on. So the department, if we might call it the Department of Grain and Agriculture for Egypt, is extremely profitable in light of the circumstances that are going around. But we notice what happens to the proceeds from all of the sales. They're deposited into Pharaoh's account. Notice what it says at the end of verse 14. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. He doesn't steal it. He doesn't do like Judas did and take a little bit for himself. He serves faithfully, making sure that the money goes to where it belongs. He operates in a trustworthy way. And just in case we're not sure about the 20, verse 20 comes along and reiterates that for us. Notice what the text said. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became, not notice what it says, not Joseph's, but Pharaoh's. Joseph was faithful and trustworthy, and as a result of that trustworthiness, Pharaoh was blessed. He's enriched as a result of that. In a similar fashion, when we operate in a trustworthy, trustworthy manner in our work environments, we're able to become a blessing to those who either employ us, to those we employ, or to the clients that we serve. I found some very interesting information this week as I went to the Theology of Work Project website to read some different articles I thought that was relevant to this topic. And I want to share some of the different things that I found in some of those articles that I think relate to this. And in relating to this one idea of being a trustworthy worker, uh, one of the guys said in an article that we have two primary ways that we can do that. One is by discharging our faithfully our fiduciary responsibilities, and second is by being an honest worker. So the article said this, our fiduciary duty requires that we must do, not do to our employers harm in the pursuit of meeting our needs. We may, not, we may dispute with them or struggle against their treatment of us, but we must not work harm against them. For example, we should not steal from them. That would be Proverbs 29, 24. Vandalize, Proverbs 18, 9, or slander them, Proverbs 10, 18, especially when we're in a moment where we're trying to air our grievances. You know, and there's some applications of that. You know, some of the ways we may not do that is to not charge a client for hours that we didn't actually work. We should not destroy our employer's property or falsely accuse them of something that's not true of them. There's also these other ideas where we begin to reflect on these concepts that come out that make us question things like, is it legitimate to cause damage to the organization's productivity or harmony by failing to, in to assist those we might view as our internal rivals? Is access to personal benefits, trips, prizes, free merchandise, and the like, leading us to steer the business to certain suppliers at the expense of our employer's best interests? See, there is a mutual duty that employers and employees owe to each other, and that is a serious matter for those who have a Christian world view. One of the interesting stories I ran across this week from uh, an industry and how they tried to play out this trustworthiness was in Dayspring Technologies. And what they've decided to do as they are working in the field of technologies, they have decided that the way that they're going to act trustworthy to their clients is by not selling their data for profit. One of their representatives, uh, who is a mobile strategist, Chen N. Yu, she said this, she said, there are other businesses or apps that are in our space where one of the ways they earn money is by selling the data of their users. For us, we always have felt like people's data is personal. It's their data. We hold it in order to serve them, in order to provide a service for them, organize it in a certain way, and help them visualize it in a certain way. 
but at the core, it's not ours for our sake. We do use it in the aggregate in order to make our product better, but not in the sense of profiting off of other people's data. And that's how they chose to be trustworthy with their clients' data. And when we act in a trustworthy way, what we find is that we can be a blessing in our work environment. But there's a second way that I see in the text in which we might be a blessing to others, at least according to the story of Joseph as narrated here. The second way is by showing mercy to others at work, showing mercy to others. So the famine is a long period of time. We know that Joseph and Jacob's family kind of show up about two years in, which means there are about five years left. And as the situation persists, things become more desperate. And we see the decline of what's happening in the text. Initially, there's this purchase of grain or food using the money, perhaps the silver that they had at that time, whatever their monetary means of exchange were, and they then use that. And of course, because they're not, most of them, the people are, are citizens or average citizens, they don't have tons of money at their disposable. And so it's not long before, as they continue to try to buy grain, that their money runs out. So they come back to Joseph and they say, the bank account is empty, brother. It's at zero. The savings account, zero. We don't have any more money, but we still need food. We still have to eat. So what can we do? And Joseph says, okay, well, you guys still own some animals. Why don't we change to a bartering system? You bring an animal, I'll evaluate that animal, and we'll give you food based on what you have, whether that's a horse, a, a donkey, a mule, whatever you have there. Bring it in, we'll exchange it for food. And so that's what they start to do. Well, you can imagine for those who probably are not wealthy like Pharaoh or, or like others, some of the nomarchs or something like that, who were operating Egypt at the time, uh, most likely that it didn't take long before they ran out of animals. And we see that happening in the text. They eventually run out of means to exchange things for food. But the famine is still persisting, and they still need to eat. So they come to Joseph, and they propose a plan to him. Okay, so we're out of money. We're out of animals. We don't really have anything left. All we have left is our land and ourselves. So we want to propose a, the, a plan in which you will purchase the land and put us in servitude. And Joseph says, okay, I'm going to agree to that, and we're going to do that. I'm going to agree, to, agree for us to be able to have that deal. But notice how he structures the deal when it's played out and when it's implemented. Let's look back at the text, verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four-fifths, shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. So we're going to take that and look at it from a modern standpoint. Joseph imposes a 20% tax on now these tenant farmers. The land is no longer theirs. It belongs to Pharaoh and now they're in servitude to him. But Joseph structures the deal so that the way that this works out, they keep 80% to sow for future use to provide food for their families and for their children, and, and Pharaoh will only get a 20% tax of what is taken in for the year. And this begins to become all the more clear that this is an act of mercy for two reasons. One, when we look at other ancient sources around the time, when people were put in similar situations, the minimum tax was around 30%, and sometimes it went up as high as 40% when people are in this situation. The second way from the text that makes me want to lean in that direction, as opposed to the direction I might lean, reading from modern Western eyes, is because of the people's response to Joseph in the text. 
Notice how they view it, not how I want to see it, but how they view it in light of the culture and what they know about the world that they live in. Verse 25, and they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be the servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph becomes a blessing to Pharaoh, and now not only has he increased his wealth, but he has increased his favor in the eyes of the people that he rules over. And Joseph, in the same way, by showing mercy, saves people's lives, many lives, as he had done not only for his family, but now for all of the Egyptians. And thus he is a blessing not only to Pharaoh, who we'd expect to be blessed, and this is how he is blessed in the text, but also to the entirety of the land of Egypt. So Joseph has been a blessing to everyone. He's been a blessing to his family, a blessing to Pharaoh, and a blessing to the people of Egypt. Likewise, when we demonstrate mercy at work, we can also be a blessing to those whom we work with. Another article said this, at work, mercy is a high, has a highly practical effect. When we are to aid others to attain the be- their best outcomes, regardless of how we feel about them, then we're able to do good. When you assist a coworker who you may not like or may, who, who may have even wronged you in the past, in that moment, you show mercy. And assisting someone that you don't like or maybe who has wronged you helps the company achieve its goals, even if it doesn't benefit you personally. Another way is by having an atmosphere in which forgiveness is able to be seen. And that has a surprising result on the performance of those who are in the organization. And that is because when when there is a forgiving environment, it allows when there is an error or when an error does happen, for a person to feel a freedom to come forward and to acknowledge that, which, which means that that error then can be corrected all the more quickly. When there's not a sense of forgiveness in the organization, then what happens is people have a tendency to want to cover up, to hide, or to blame others and to push it off, and thus the problem is not addressed. The second way that this works is, is that it benefits the company because now when a person comes forward, that can be used as a learning experience by which others now can benefit, and thus that error not being repeated. One of the stories I ran across this week that I thought was a good demonstration of someone choosing to show mercy at work was by a lady by the name of Danielle Bird. Danielle Bird happens to serve as an executive vice president in commercial banking. And at an earlier point in her career, she had a crisis moment because she's a believer in Jesus Christ and whatever was going on in her life led her to a point of crisis. So she called up a friend like most of us do when we're in a point of crisis in our career lives. And she talked to her friend and she said to her friend, hey, listen, this is what's going on. Her friend was talking to her and she began to ask, hey, what would you do if you could do anything in the world? And she said, right now, the burden on my heart, what I would do is I would go to India and I would serve with Mother Teresa. And she said, well, why don't you do it? So that's what she did. She took time out of her career. She went and she served with Mother Teresa. And there she learned some valuable lessons that she ultimately ended up taking back into the workforce when she went back into her career field, which was banking. And she told the story about two years ago of an event that happened uh, in her life. She was in a meeting with an executive who had failed to perform in that quarter. And she talked about how she handled that specific situation. So she's in this meeting and she asked him about why was his numbers not lining up, why there had been the, the lack of performance, because in this particular case, we're talking about millions of dollars right? Millions of dollars that are, that are at stake here. And so she's, she's talking to him and she asks him, he gives her all the technical reasons for why he's failing to perform and what's going on in life. Now she could have taken an alternate course of how she would have dealt with that, but she decided because of what she had 
uh, learned in India with Mother Teresa about serving the poor and about caring and valuing people, she decided to show mercy in that moment. And what she did was she talked to him. And some of the things I remember that she said was she said to him, listen, I know your heart. I've been working with you for a while. And I know that you would not have underperformed if there wasn't something else going on in your life. Let's just have a moment of transparency here. What's really going on? How are your kids doing? How, how's your family doing? What's happening? What, let's have a moment of honesty. When she changed the type of conversation that was happening, he had an emotional response. Tears began to well up in his eyes and flow down his face. And he broke down and he began to share about some of the transitions that had been happening at their specific banking uh, place of business and employment and how some of those transitions had, had a negative impact on his family. And in that moment, he then apologized for his performance and what had been happening uh, in the last few months and why things were happening the way that they were. And she began to share with him because she had a Christian worldview and this began to influence her. And she began to encourage him to, to seek to try to forgive those who had hurt him and done him wrong and began to, to encourage him to, to want to operate in a loving way by being honest with the other executives that he worked with. And through that, she was able to mend a relationship and save an employee, one, a, a friend that she was able to work with. And why was that the case? Because she decided to show mercy. And in that moment, she was a blessing to another staff member. And when we decide to show mercy at work as well, when it's appropriate in those moments, we can be a blessing to others as well. Now, what is our motivation for wanting to act at least in these two ways in the work environment to be a blessing to others? Well, the story of Joseph, when we look at it holistically in this specific text of what happens, we're reminded of an aspect of salvation. See, like the Egyptians, we were in a place where we face certain death, not because of a famine, but because of choices we have made, sin. And we were facing God's wrath. We stood under his judgment. But God intervened. The one who was chosen, anointed by God, rejected by his people, who was restored after death and raised to the right hand of the king, rescued us, just like Joseph did for the Egyptians. And that's why we tell people that Jesus saves. So as we sang earlier in our service today, we were reminded of what happened in Revelation that gives us an idea of what Jesus has done for us that influences how and why and why we should be motivated at work. Listen to what the saints say in reflection about what Jesus has done from a heavenly perspective. Revelation, notice what the text says. They were singing a new song. You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were killed. And at the cost of your own blood, you have purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have appointed him as a kingdom and as priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. See, the saints of the future, or, or at least from the way that it's portrayed in the vision that John sees, understand something that's fundamental that happened as a result of what Jesus has done on the cross. He has purchased us. And we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to God, indeed, if we are Christ's. And no one, it was because of this reasoning that Paul says to the Corinthians in his second letter, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for whose their sake died and was raised. See, the believer no longer lives with the aim to please ourselves. That's no longer our aim because we've been purchased by Christ on the cross. 
Now our sole aim in life is to please God in everything. And that thus includes our work environment, and that's why our work falls under the broader heading of discipleship. Because work is just another arena in which we live out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that. Of course, in this context, they were slaves in the first century. But Paul says this, which applies to us in light of the fact of what Jesus has done. Whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. When you go to work tomorrow, when you get up and you engage in this, whatever it is you do, the person that you're really serving is Jesus. That's who you belong to. That's who you're working for. And that's the motivation of why we ought to want to be a blessing to others at work, whether that's either by being trustworthy or showing mercy, because the one we're ultimately working for, who's watching every day what we're doing, the one who's going to give us the real evaluation, the job performance at the end, is Jesus. He's the one that we're serving. Now, that might, for some of you who might be in this room, you might feel left out by the sermon. You may say to yourself, well, listen, I'm a homemaker. I'm a homeschooling parent. I'm unemployed. I'm retired, or I may be a student at this point in my life. So this sermon really does not apply to me. So let me draw back from my community group study what we talked about on Thursday night and share from you a little bit of what it says there. One of the writers said this, all of the assignments are really just a part of one primary responsibility that we have, which is to follow and honor Jesus. Are you a retiree? God has called you to be a retiree who is striving to follow Jesus and bring him glory. Are you unemployed? Even then, you need to understand your assignment from God right now is to be unemployed, and he intends for you to use this season to follow Jesus and bring him glory. So whether you're managing a home, you have the responsibility of educating your children at home, whether you're looking for employment or whether you're volunteering because you have free time. All of those are the work that God has given you in this season of life. That is your job right now. And as a result, you ought to do it in the same way to bring him glory, which means that those responsibilities you've been given in this season of your life, you are to do those in a trustworthy manner and show mercy to those whom you are interact with on a daily basis. Let me close with a story I think that epitomizes this whole idea of being a Christian in the work environment and using your faith to influence how you engage with others in work so that you might be a blessing to them. I, was heard, I heard about the story through our dear friend, as, as part of who's in the video you saw, uh, our church administrator, Pat Brown. Uh, he shared with me a book that he had read a while back, and I thought the story was fascinating. And it was told about a gentleman by the name of Wayne Alderson. Uh, the book was written, the biography at least, that was written about his life was done by R.C. Sproul. Let me tell you a, bit, a little bit about Wayne's life. So Wayne, of course, had fought in World War II, and part of, of doing his job, he served as a point man in World War II. And in that uh, discharging his duties of what he was done, doing at that point, he was shot in the head. And by God's grace, he survived. And because of that experience of what happened in his life, he then viewed himself as a point man for the rest of his life. Now, it was about 20 years between the time he finished his service in World War II and the time he would go to work for Pitron Steel, which is the main focus of what I'm going to share with you. But in that meantime, what he did was uh, he met a young lady by the name of Nancy, and like most of us, met a wonderful woman, you marry her. And so that's what he did. He married her. 
And then he got involved in a local church. And there, because of his faithful service, uh, they asked him to serve as an elder of the church. And that's what he did for a while. And then after becoming an elder of the church, he became a Christian. I know that seems out of order, but that's the way it happened in his life. So then he went to work for Pitron Steel uh, about 1965. And when he went to work for them, he sought to, to, to take his Christian faith into his work environment because he cared about workers. Because he had this view that the workers were not the enemies of management. They were the ones making the company move forward. And things at Pitron were really bad. And a documentary done about his life called The Miracle of Pitron, the narrator begins to describe uh, what the work environment like was for the employees. He described it as harsh working conditions, sim similar to for those who are familiar with coal mining type environments. Uh, there was a lot of unrest in the employment uh, side for those who were employees, and there was a lot of racial and hatred te and tension among the different employees who worked there. Uh, for the management, of course, this was a time when many pro promises had been broken, and for three years, they had a deficit, which added up in those three years to six million dollars and because they had such a deficit the company was looking at closing uh, the steel foundry at that time and Wayne of course uh, was in the middle of the situation because and because things were so bad had deteriorated at that point the workers had gone on strike for 84 days and so most of the management had left and it was only really Wayne and one other person left in the management of the steel foundry at that point and so Wayne they he then got promoted to vice president of operations well there's only two people left so he took over the role of vice president of operations. And because of his faith in, in Jesus Christ, and that was influenced in how he worked in the environment, he decided to meet with the union leader and talked about a new plan, which they called Operation Turnaround, about how workers would be treated in order to address some of the conditions. And so that's exactly what they did. And as he met with the union leader after that, the strike came to an end, and the workers returned to see what Operation Turnaround would look like for them. And Wayne did some interesting things during that period of the turnaround. One of the things that he did was he sought to engage the people to show them that he valued them. So he spent most of his days not in the office, but in the plants, talking to the workers, greeting them, letting them know, know how much they were valued. And at the end of the day, he would be there at, at almost the end of every shift, make sure that he saw all three shifts that worked in a day to greet them and to thank them for a hard day's work. And that was one of the ways that he did that, engaged them to, to care about them. Uh, and as a light of that, because he was doing that, he also held a Bible study and workers began to crowd and he began to inform them about what it meant to be a Christian and to share faith with them. And so he did that, invested in their lives. Now, this meant for, for, for Wayne that he would have some very long days during his work week, about 14 hours a day. But that investment, the caring for people, the showing mercy, being a trustworthy worker had a benefit over time. The company turned around. No longer did it have a deficit. It had a profit. And it became very profitable after his leadership in the company. And what happens when a company becomes profitable, sometimes people sell it off. And in this case, that's exactly what they did. Because he was able to turn the company around, they sold the company. New management came in, who were the new buyers, and they said to Wayne, we don't like the way you, your management style is working. We don't like the way that you're engaging and showing value to these employees. We want there to be a separation between the management and the employees. And Wayne said, because of my Christian faith and because of how I value the person, I don't think I can operate that way. So they then terminated him as a result of that, which led to a new phase in his life where God caused him to start his own business of teaching how to value people. 
And God blessed that business, and he went on to go travel all over the world teaching businesses about valuing people. And in that way, he showed mercy to others. He went on to serve there until 2012 when he became ill, and the next year he passed away just here in 2013. Because Wayne had this view. He said, listen, the reality is I'm a Christian, but I live most of my life at work. And if my Christianity doesn't play into my work life, then where am I going to live it out at? So he believed there should be no separation between how he lives as a Christian in the work environment as well uh, as in the rest of his life. And that's the reality for all of us. Most of us are going to live our lives mostly at work, and our Christianity has to influence that aspect of our life. And that's why he adopted 2 Corinthians 5.18 as his verse, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and then we have now been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. And that's the same thing that's true of us. So in light of all of that, because of what Jesus has done for us, we ought to seek to be a blessing to others in our work environment, whatever that environment is. Whether that's you're working for a bank, whether that's you're working at Subway, whether that's you're working in your home, whether that's you're volunteering in a nonprofit organization, whatever it is that God has assigned your hands to do in this season of life, seek to be a blessing because you want to glorify God and you can do that. You can do that by being trustworthy, and you can do that by being merciful. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I do pray, Father, that we would seek to be a blessing at work. As the scripture says, we have been called to this so that we might receive a blessing. And I thank you for this kind reminder, Lord, to live in that way. So much of our lives are lived in the work environment, and this also is a part of the arena by which we are disciples of Jesus Christ. May we live out our faith in the places that we work. God, and we thank you for the reminder there are at least two ways here from this text. We can be trustworthy, Lord, and maybe in some ways, Lord, we have not been trustworthy. Forgive us for those ways that we have not acted trustworthy to what has been entrusted to us. And Lord, as you provide us opportunities in those moments, not to let the flesh rule, but to walk in the spirit and show mercy as is appropriate for the environment and situation we're in. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us and we'll dismiss you after a final song.